Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Craig LeHoulier. He is the author of Epic Tomatoes. And as you can gather by that name, he is a tomato man. And Craig, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Kathy. It's it's a pleasure to be able to chat to my, I guess, my 40-year and counting passion with you. So appreciate you asking me to be here. Well, we love talking about shared passions, and for many people in both of our audience, it's tomatoes. And what brought you originally to tomatoes? Were you a kid that sat in the garden and just ate them out of hand? No, it's actually a little more complicated than that, and I haven't thoroughly figured it out myself, but I know that what brought me to gardening was sitting in a garden, um, my grandfather's garden with him walking me through it. Um, A nice, really quite large garden behind his house when I was probably two or three, four years old. So that I think many of us who are avid gardeners have a seed planted in us at an early age by by a loved one. Um, So that's why, why gardening. My dad actually helped nurture that and In fact, last night I just got done transcribing a garden journal that I never knew that he even kept, Um, but we found it after he had a stroke and then passed away, and I finally went back to it and decided, I need to get this into an electronic form so I can actually read it and just be amazed at uh, how my hobby fueled his hobby later in life. So so where I became the the NC Tomato Man, he actually in his 70s became the Rhode Island tomato man. And it was just really fun to share that. But I really didn't like tomatoes as a kid, Um, but it was my grandfather's tomato that he grew probably when I was 12, 13, 14. I I made the plunge, went for it, and decided "These, these are really, really good. But the obsession, the level of insanity that I, that I've uh, dove into it, you know, so I've grown, I have about, oh gosh, six, 7,000 different types of seeds. I've grown or tasted over 4,000 types. Um, that all just happened because I think it was meant to happen. Um, the number of people that have sent me their family heirlooms, the fascination with the diversity of sizes and colors and shapes and flavors and all of the great stories associated with them. It's just worked out and I went with the flow and I think given my first garden when my wife and I get married, our first garden was in 1981 and here we are still gardening and my specialty of tomatoes started in 1986 and that continues to this day. So um, like I said, a a little complicated answer to a very simple question. (laughs) (laughs) And that's common with a lot of us. So Earlier in our podcast, at the end of March, actually, we spoke to Doug Oster outside of Pittsburgh about all things tomatoes and starting them off from seed and starting off the season. And we talked about a a few of his favorite varieties. So I'd love to 
talk to you in this discussion, of course, about some of your favorite varieties and tips. But now that we're at harvest time, um, what are you picking and what are you eating? Well, what I am picking is nothing anymore because we had, so um, we had just moved about eight months ago from 28 years in Raleigh where I actually learned how to garden pretty well as well as one can do in such incessant heat and humidity. Um, my wife is a quilter and she'd be in the house up in the bonus room making quilts in a nice air conditioned and then she'd just look out the window and think, what are you doing out there for three or four hours every day when it's 95 degrees and uh, you're gardening, you're, you know, you're nurturing the plants along. Um, what I found out here is everything came on quite early, quite heavy, my 132 plants. Today we are canning up to, up to quart number 64, which breaks our previous record of 25 quarts canned after a season. So wow. it was utterly fantastic. Um, my indeterminate varieties probably yielded 20 to 25 or 30 pounds of fruit per plant. Um, at the end, what I still have on my counter that we're eating are some of our late picks. Uh, a few brandy wines are lingering. Quite a few of our dwarf tomato project varieties. I get them, I got them planted about a month later. So the the indeterminate heirlooms fulfilled the first half of our, of our um, eating season and a lot of our dwarf project varieties fulfilled the latter half. But we, I picked my first tomato July 15th and all of the plants came out on August 25th, just to give you an idea on the incredibly concentrated nature of the garden season here in Hendersonville for me. And what growing zone is Hendersonville? Uh, it seems to be, um, and these things do tend to change over time. I know Raleigh went from a seven to an eight when I was there. But we're firmly in uh, about a seven, maybe a seven A. Um, and what we're finding is the biggest difference of gardening here, where we had one or two days that reached 90 or above, and the humidity always stayed fairly comfortable. In Raleigh, where we had 60 or 70 days a summer that were 90 and above, including some really substantial multi-day heat waves and very high humidity, fruit set here was so much better um, blossom drop in raleigh was a real problem and then the other thing here i noticed the incidence of foliage disease was was quite low relatively speaking until we had about a seven day straight rain event uh, that happened about two weeks ago that took my plants from pretty much perfect looking to disease ridden uh, mostly with the common summer tomato diseases of early blight, septoria leaf spot. But they but the plants gave me what they needed to give me. And I may be a bit of a different gardener philosophically in that I don't aim to garden 12 months a year. I don't really plant succession to extend the season. I'm very much a seasonal eater. Um, my wife and I are like that, whether we're, we go strawberry picking or blackberry picking. We eat what's in season, we eat, eat what's in the garden, we enjoy it, we gouge it, gouge on it, we can and we dehydrate, we make sauce. And then um, I'm so exhausted and pour so much into it that I love the cool down period and then the ability to consolidate what I learned. Uh, you know, look at my logs and fill out my what went well, what didn't go well, share it, share that with my Instagram audience. And uh, 
and then start planning already for next year. What are the things that I'll do differently? What are the things that I've learned? Um, you know, gardening is the most wonderful continuous improvement project where we're given a pass each year to correct the things that we didn't do quite well this year. Um, so in a way, gardening just makes time fly by because the years just, they're like pages of a calendar, the way that they, they flip by so fast. Hmm. And it's so nice to have that luxury of looking back at those records and being able to think, this year I'm going to do this different. And so what was one of your goals for this year that you thought you'd be d doing different aside from being in a whole new location? Yeah, so fantastic question. So I knew that when we moved in, this would be a great opportunity to garden in a totally different type of an area uh, for the first time in 28 years. And I wanted to really pay close attention to the things that I tried and did differently because um, I think, as some people know, I like to share my experiences through weekly live Instagrams and, uh, and I blog. I should be blogging more, but I do blogs and newsletters. So I, I very much like to uh, be a realistic educator, show the good and the bad, you know, the healthy plants and the diseased plants, just to make people realize that um, nothing's guaranteed with gardening. Every season's different. Every year we make mistakes. Every year we hopefully learn from them. So a few things that struck me this year, uh, my backyard, which is pretty much a flat quarter acre that gets really good sun, is also on the leach field for our septic system. So over the years, I've developed an experience and a familiarity and an expertise in growing things in containers in growing things in straw bales. And I thought that's going to be utterly fantastic for me to be able to use all of the space that I've got, but plant the garden on top of the ground. So I literally didn't dig into any of my soil here. The My 24 indeterminate plants were on 12 straw bales, two plants per bale, and then the rest was filled out with five gallon grow bags and containers where I planted the other 110 or so. Um, I did have a raised bed where I planted things like green beans and beets and lettuce. And then I have clusters of bales where I planted my squash and my beans. So my goal was to plant two indeterminate plants per straw bale. And um, thinking that I was going to prune them somewhat judiciously and keep track of them and, uh, you know, bang stakes in the ground and make sure that they're all upright. Um, one of the things I learned is that the plants here grew so vigorously and then my, my year was just so busy moving in and adjusting and Sue and I exploring the area and going on lots of hikes that I pretty much lost control of my suckering and pruning and then decided, let's just see what these plants can do. So they were off to the races. One stake per plant was totally insufficient. The fruit set was so enormous that at, at one point during the season, I was using any type of chair, ladder, sawhorse, you name it, to try to keep the plants somewhat vertical. Um, people can see that if they look through my Instagram feed where the garden looked really wonderful and I was really proud of it. And then all of a sudden, thunderstorms come in and start pushing things over. Um, and But that's fine. Um, because I didn't have a garden that was planted on soil, I wasn't so concerned about disease agents that often live in the soil and get onto the lower foliage and the fruit causing a lot of issues. 
and the plants maintain their health really well until the very, very end. I did have to do a lot of crawling around, picking tomatoes, deciding which one was, was on one plant for seed saving purposes. So one of the things I learned is that two plants per bale, uh, if I'm going to plant them unpruned, uh, my trellising system was entirely insufficient. So I'm actually thinking of going to one indeterminate tomato per straw bale and uh, using four stakes on the corners of that bale and having four primary leaders on each tomato plant. Um, all of that room, the equivalent of 40 gallon capacity planting area in the bale should allow the plants to really, really thrive. And I'll probably approach the yield of the 24 plants from the 12 plants just because I'm going to be able to tend them a little bit better. Um, uh, the other thing I learned that was pretty significant is that planting time, and I knew this from Raleigh as well, planting time means uh, makes a real difference. And if you can get your tomatoes in before the days get really, really hot, your fruit set and your yield will be better. So it, there was a, a month gap between planting my indeterminates in the bales and my dwarf varieties in the five gallon grow bags. And I didn't maximize the yield at all in the later planted tomatoes, um, mostly because we had the hotter weather when they were blossoming and, and I did experience a little more blossom end rot. But I was still satisfied out of, out of 133 varieties, I saved seed of 131, only two failures out of 133 plants. I consider a, a really successful season. Um, it didn't lose a single plant to disease and I did not spray anything on any plants that I was growing the whole year long. Um, so the other data point that I wanted to collect was what are, what are the diseases and the critters like here? And if I just do what I, my friend Jessica Walliser suggests, which is let, yeah, you're going to get pests, but then let the predators of those pests come out. If you spray, you'll be killing as many predators as pests. So let's just see if, if your garden will be in balance and things will take care of themselves. And uh, I had hardly any stink bugs, hardly any hornworms, hardly any fruit worms. Um, I picked off hardly any disease foliage with using absolutely no spray. So it was a very low maintenance garden in terms of care. The biggest thing was watering because when you're planting in containers and straw bales and you're in the middle of the summer, you are watering those daily to reduce plant stress because if you reduce plant stress, you minimize blossom end rot. So just many, many things I've learned, and I'm sure more will come to me as you know. I sit down with my log during those fall and winter evenings with a glass of wine and start fondly thinking, thinking back over what a fun garden it was, and uh, you know, coming up with that plan then of what things do I want to play with next year for adjusting. That does sound fun with a, a glass of wine for <laughs> <laughs> some of those long winter nights and hopefully some of that canned tomato yeah. uh, that you have right now that will taste just as fresh um, for a winter's meal. Uh, so mentioning straw bales, you also wrote a book on growing vegetables in straw bales uh, in addition to your epic tomatoes. And why do you prefer straw bale growing or who do you recommend it to? So to me, um, gardeners have the ability to look at their yard or their space or their community garden and then to assess, number one, where does the sun shine best? Uh, where can I get watering to best? What's going to be most convenient 
for me to be able to get to it and tend to it. And oftentimes, uh, nobody has the perfect yard. So we have a yard where there's a square where we could dig a garden, but there's trees all around it and it only gets two or three hours of sun a day. But look, in the driveway, I get sun seven hours a day. I can't dig up the driveway, but I certainly can put containers and drive and uh, straw bales on that surface and garden there. So the way I look at straw bale gardening is that it is a variation of container gardening and that you're growing above ground, you're moving um, your crops to where the sun shines best in your yard. And then it's just a case of learning the particulars about how to make it work. Um, what I, some of the things I love about straw bales and, and I will say that the reason I am growing in straw bales is when Story asked me to write the book on it, I said, well, I can't write a book about something that I haven't really thoroughly tested. So I did buy uh, Joel Carsten's book and talked to my friend Kent, who was, they were, you know, one was the current expert in straw bale gardening, the other um, grew in straw bales near me found out what they did but then i like i do all the time i kind of started from scratch and tried to wipe away preconceived notions and use logic and thinking use some of their hints and tips but then made um whatever modifications i thought would be suitable for the most success and uh, i absolutely loved it so what are some of the savings of straw bales over containers are that you don't have to go buy the big bags of potting mix or have the big you know, uh, containers of potting mix brought to your house and, and dumped to your house and delivered. A straw bale is essentially two 20 gallons containers of perfect future loam that just needs to be um, supercharged by hitting it with nitrogen, um, high levels of nitrogen for a week, lots of water, then a balanced fertilizer. Um, you're starting clean and disease free. So those who really are interested in heirloom gardening and want to grow some plants that may be really disease sensitive and haven't succeeded for them in their soil, straw bales provide a really good option that allows you to um, maximize the possibility of success and avoid some of the diseases that has taken it down. Uh, the fact that it's two feet above the ground means that when you're tending the plants, you're not bending over as much. It's great for string beans because bending over to pick bush beans really gets to your back. But if you can pull up a chair to your straw bale and pick bush beans, it's great. And the fact that you can pretty much grow everything in them. Um, the one caveat, and this is becoming increasingly relevant today, is that you need to try as best you can make sure that you're buying your straw bales from a source that has not put persistent herbicides of some sort on the fields before the straw is harvested. Um, and I learned that by the hard experience of having two of my straw bales kill my plants a few years ago. Um, but for a five or six dollar straw bale, compare that to what it costs to fill two 20 gallon pots with a good quality potting mix. And at the end of the season, you've got um, wonderful mulch or loam or something to put in your containers or to mulch your flower bed with. It, it's maybe not the perfect alternative to traditional gardening, but it's pretty darn good. And uh, I've used it to great success now for about four or five years to augment my containers and uh, in-ground gardening. Hmm. And that's an excellent point about sourcing. I do know that uh, the few people in our, 
my area who I know that are attempting straw bale gardening uh, are having quite a lot of difficulty um, in finding, you know, bales that are guaranteed that they weren't exposed to those pesticides. Right. And I've found that it's the big box hardware stores where I've had the issue. They're probably getting them from more generic sources where if I've gone to where if I go to the small community gardening center, often they've got a an agreement with a local um, farmer who is an organic farmer. Um, here in Hendersonville, we have a wonderful store named um, Valley Ag in Mills River, and there's they're the best quality straw bales that I've ever used. My plants just, I can't believe um, the yields and the success and the health of the plants in those bales. So, you know, so they can be sure that um, they'll get my business year after year after year. Um, and, but yeah, I think that is the main caveat. And you know, pretty much right away because you, you don't see the wheatgrass coming up that you typically do. You don't see nearly as many mushrooms. And if you put your nice healthy seedlings in and you water them, within a couple of weeks, they're starting to wilt with no real visible reason. And that's when you can kind of bet that there's something embedded in that straw that's uh, affecting the ability of your plant to grow well. And you mentioned uh, your other tomatoes you're growing in five gallon grow bags. And I assume that's with a potting mix added in. Yeah. So what I, what I like to put in either container, and I've, I've grown plants in pretty much everything. Uh, anything that holds soil. I, I do tend to avoid terracotta because you have to water them enough when they're plastic. When when it's terracotta and water can exp, uh, respire through the sides of the pot, it means you're watering even more. But I like to use a, a roughly three to one mixture of a good quality soilless potting mix. And there's an infinite number of them at, at um, garden centers. There's you know the typical traditional types. There's also organic types. And, but I like to mix in uh, one part of a composted cow manure. And again, there's some, you know, really popular varieties uh, or brands of that out there. And I've found that the soilless mix gives nice drainage. Um, typically, it's pretty sterile and your plant starting off um, in kind of a clean environment. Um, but it drains fast and it can dry out fast. And I like that one part of a composted manure in there to add a little heft add a little uh, a little bit of micronutrients in there although usually they're about 0 0.5 0 0.5 0 0.5 or 111 they're pretty pretty low fire but but they also absorb water uh, and hold water a little bit better um, but it's not precise it's nothing I, I kind of eyeball it rather than precisely measure it um, I found that what the plants need really reg is regular care regular watering regular feeding and uh, they need tending and you know one of the success factors with tomatoes and i like to kind of tell a story about what can go wrong um, for 20 years we sold seedlings from our either the farmer's market or our driveway in raleigh and we met the nicest people and we introduced the raleigh folks in the triangle area to so many different varieties where you know many of them had only grown better boy or big boy and within five years i had them growing every color under the sun um, but one, one really nice couple came and they said, you know, your plants just didn't do well for us last year. We thought we'd give them a try. And I said, well, what happened? Well, we planted them and then we went on a cruise and it took about a month. And then when we got back home, we, could, we couldn't find the plants amongst the weeds. And I said, 
Yeah, tomatoes are, they really like regular tending. Um, I mean, to me as an avid gardener, I think the greatest joy in a day is spending an hour or two every day just looking at your plants, no matter what you're growing, reading them, looking at the foliage color, trying to find any insects or disease issues. And tomatoes really do repay attention in that you're identifying the issues at the very, very beginning and uh, eliminating them so that you can have a really good crop. So um, uh, sometimes I think tomato growing is a pretty self-selecting hobby because those who aren't really serious about it or don't have a lot of time tend to get a little bit discouraged early on. Um, but those who find the passion in it and the love of just being out there and smelling the plants and looking at the flowers open, you know, like I said, there's no guarantees. And just because I've written a book doesn't mean that three out of every 10 years, I have a lot of issues out there because um, that's half the fun of gardening, right? The, the fact that there's mystery involved and you don't know where you're going to end up at the end of a season. Could be great. Could be a little disappointing, but it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, every year is a different adventure um, in all aspects of gardening. And earlier you mentioned the Dwarf Tomato Project. Um, what is a dwarf tomato <laughs> as opposed to a regular tomato? And what is involved in the project? Yeah, so this, so what I find is as my passion with tomatoes started when I joined the Seed Savers Exchange in 1986, and then I became completely transfixed and seduced by all of the different heirlooms. And then I, I hit another phase where I started exploring the seed banks of the USDA to find out all of the varieties that used to be in seed catalogs that people thought were extinct way back to the 1800s. So I went through both of those kind of obsessions and I was thinking, what is next? And um, the, the Dwarf Tomato Project was stimulated by a question that a few of my customers asked me back in the early 2000s, maybe 2002, 2003, what have you got that tastes great, is really interesting looking, and I can grow it on a patio or a deck or a small pot because frankly, physically, I'm not capable of climbing a ladder to harvest tomatoes, or I don't know what to do with these 10 foot vines. And, and, you know, I had to think about that. And at the time, there were a few determinant varieties. Determinants um, have a gene in them that, that essentially stops the growth at about three feet tall. If people know about things like Roma or Taxi, Sophie's Choice, they'll get an idea of what determinants are like. But because they fruit so heavily, the, the flavors of determinants are... Uh, finite. They can only get so good. And I've never had a determinate variety that I can actually say this is just one of the best tomatoes I've ever eaten. Now, since 1950, there's been this almost totally unknown class of tomato called dwarf. And dwarf describes the dwarf habit. It's got a genetic trait in which the plant grows with a very stout, central, thick central stem and the foliage is a very dark bluish green and almost wrinkly looking, but the plant tends to grow at about half of the rate vertically as an indeterminate variety. Indeterminates are sun gold and Cherokee purple and brandy wine and the ones that you have to climb a ladder to harvest, but they fruit until frost. Um, the issue was all through the 1800s into the early 1900s, 
there was very, very, very little diversity. There was a, a pink one and a red one and a yellow one, but the fruit size wasn't all that big. And container gardening wasn't all that popular. So no one actually um, played with them and found out what their potential was. So I, through GardenWeb, a really good uh, garden discussion website that kind of had its heyday in the, in the 2004 to 2008 period, I met an Australian uh, woman, Petrina, who loved to do tomato crossings. And she and I talked over this problem we were having about creating delicious, interesting varieties that are on short, easy to care for plants. And the other thing that they didn't have back in the 1940s and 50s is the wide range of sizes and colors of the heirlooms that, thanks to the Seed Savers Exchange, we can all grow today. So Petrina started taking the very few existing dwarf varieties, all of which had been around since the 1890s, dwarf champion and golden dwarf champion. But she started crossing them with heirlooms like Cherokee purple and Cherokee green and Brandywine. And now we needed a process. So we were using this website called Tomatoville, a lot of enthusiastic tomato nuts, just like us. And we wanted this to be an altruistic, all volunteer, open source breeding project, all uh, where anybody who liked to grow tomatoes and was good at observing what they did and could save some seed and maybe take a picture and send it back. Well, here we are, that started in 2005. Uh, we're now in 2020. The project has been going for 15 years, and we have put uh, 123 new stable varieties. Uh, once we did the cross and worked selecting what we wanted over seven or eight generations, we stabilized it to where if you grow it and save seeds from it, it will come true. And uh, there is one seed company, Victory, out in Oregon, owned by my friend Mike, who is um, he's dedicated to offering all of our releases. Other companies like Fruition, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, Tomato Fest have jumped on the bandwagon, um, some of them quite early on, and are offering small selections of our dwarfs. But Victory has the full set. And this is where you can pick the one pound tomato on the three foot tall plant that tastes like a brandy wine. And you can select from striped and swirled and purple and green and brown and white and paste tomatoes and cherry tomatoes. Um, our project's goal was to just create tomatoes and then give them to a seed company. And uh, we were never making any, even a cent off it was never in our remit. That's not why we did it. Um, we did it as a collective project to create interesting things for home gardeners to make their gardening life more uh, interesting for them by fulfilling this need of having um, manageable tomatoes produce delicious, beautiful tomatoes. And so each year in my garden this year, I had about 60 um, test plants of various generations of things that we're still working on. And, uh, you know, anybody can still get involved. They send me an email and they want to be part of it. And I send them some seeds and they grow it out. The only stipulation is save some seeds, let me know how it does and send them back to me. And if they find something great um, and name it, they'll or work on a particular name variety, they'll get their name in a seed catalog. So um, the third book that I'm working on now is going to be to tell the story of, of this project and how we conceived it and how it's worked and what our successes have been. And I hope to get that self published uh, by the end of the year. 
Fantastic. I can't wait to read that. So in addition to the dwarf, um, are you looking at all at grafting onto shorter stock? Um, that's a really good question about grafting. And many, many people have um, asked me that. Um, I have not looked at grafting yet, mostly because my to-do list is already so full and a lot of other people are looking at it. Um, a lot of grafting is done to deal with people that have extreme disease issues in their garden. Um, and so, you know, people that have a lot of fusarium wilt, verticillium wilt, um, maybe different type of viral issues, by grafting a top of a sensitive grape flavored variety onto a rootstock that offers that protection of diseases that come through the root vector, um, they can conceivably, and you know, it's been demonstrably shown in some cases that they're getting improved yield. Um, the it's been too much fun to play with the genetics of the of the actual dwarfs, and now that we've gotten 123, when you think about it, uh, when Petrina and I started the project, we only had four dwarfs to cross onto. Now we've got over 100. So if you can conceive of a tomato foliage color, leaf shape, um, fruit shape, um, we can probably find a way to create it. But we do like to, and, and the other thing about graphs uh, and why I've kind of stayed away from them is the added cost. And I tend to really like to be a, a frugal gardener um, to get the biggest bang for the least buck. And and one of the reasons I'm particularly focusing on that this year, and I think this will be familiar to you, um, Kathy, is COVID has, of course, been a horrendous event, and it still is. But what we try to do, of course, is look for what are, what are the little sparks of light that we can maybe pluck out of it. And one of them is the fact that COVID is creating countless new gardeners to the point where seed companies literally cannot keep up with the numbers of orders coming in. They, some of them have had to close for weeks, or if not months. So what I try to do is make myself available to help these new COVID gardeners become forever gardeners. And a lot of that, I feel like those of us who um, have written books or we do garden speaking, and we've got really good experience regarding it and good experience with success, I feel like it's kind of up to us to pay back by being available to help all of these new gardeners um, through the difficult patches, answer, you know, answer the maybe very basic questions that maybe you've answered a hundred times, but you know what, this new gardener has never asked it before. So, um, so a, 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 I guess a convoluted answer to the grafting question um, but how I tend to pick my garden um, passions and projects is to look for areas that are relatively unexplored and to dig into them. And for areas that do have a lot of resource on them, like um, I think disease and breeding and disease resistance and tolerance is an awful lot of people, and that takes a lot of resource. So I've tended to shy away from that, and maybe I've selfishly taken the fun stuff, what tomatoes look like, what they taste like, the ones that have really interesting stories and histories behind them. Um, because the other way to captivate and create gardeners is to tell stories, 
tell them how Cherokee Purple became named or about Archie Hook who sent me the Hughes tomato or all of the different mortgage lifter stories that are out there. That gives another hook for people to take an interest. And, you know, if they like to read and they like stories, that may be reason enough for them to decide they want to delve into gardening where they can grow a whole garden of stories out there. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to my next question, which was going to be all about Cherokee Purple. And <laughs> one of your claims to fame is to be the man who named it. Oh, so weird. Um, so the, in a way, the Cherokee Purple story is an answer to what you asked me right off the bat of why have I gotten so heavily involved with tomatoes. And just the fact that uh, John Green of Tennessee saw fit to send me seeds of the unnamed variety that I ended up naming Cherokee Purple. And, you know, a similar thing happened to Anna Russian and a similar thing happened to Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. I've gotten to play such a key role in uh, either naming or getting into seed catalogs so many wonderful heirlooms that I feel like I really had no choice. Somebody, somebody somewhere has decided, you know, this guy with the funny French name is going to be the tomato dude. Go for it. Um, but a little more in Cherokee Purple because we did learn a little bit. When, oh, so let me go back. When one moves and cleans up the messes that are their desks and offices, sometimes little bits of information become uncovered that have become forgotten. So when I was looking through my garden um, things to pack, and, and I'll admit that my wife being a quilter, it was her fabric that, was, that took the most boxes. Me as a gardener, it was my seed catalogs and my seeds and my garden logs. So forget the clothes, forget everything else. It was the gardening stuff. But I had an envelope on it was written Cherokee Purple Conversations with J.D. Green. And I'll now fill in what I learned. So what I know about the history of Cherokee Green is that in the Rutledge, Tennessee area, sometime in the late 1800s, the Cherokee Indians passed on a purple-fruited variety that, as far as we know, was unnamed to a gentleman whose last name was Greenlee. He must have grown it, and he passed it on to his, I believe it's his granddaughter, Jean Greenlee, who lived in Rutledge, Tennessee, sometime in uh, the mid-1900s, maybe 1970 or so. So John D. Green, who lived in Sevierville, Tennessee, must have been talking gardening to this uh, Jean Greenlee. And she said, I have this really incredible tomato I want to share with you. And she shared it with John and he grew it. But it was just, so it was only in this tiny, tiny, tiny little area that it was being grown and shared. And uh, Mr. Green knew of me by looking at uh, different seed swaps in magazines like uh, Organic Gardening and National Gardening. And he knew that I was someone who loved to collect tomato seeds. So uh, totally unsolicited I um, received a letter in 1990 when I was living up in Pennsylvania saying, here are seeds of a purple tomato that originate from the Cherokee Indians. I actually have uh, a picture of that letter in the back of the Epic Tomatoes book, the letter that accompanied the seeds. Hope you like it. So, so when Mr. Green described the tomato as purple, I thought, well, a lot of times pink tomatoes like Brandywine or Arkansas Traveler 
uh, are described as being purple. So I thought it was just going to be a German Johnson type, another typical pink. This was before the black tomato craze. So I grew it in my garden. And of course, I had never seen a tomato of that color. And I harvested the first one. I was pretty excited. And uh, my wife and I tasted it. And we're like, my God, this is a really good tomato. So I think one of the things that do distinguish gardeners from a lot of other people is that if we have something special and great, our first inclination is not to hoard it and hide it. It is to share it and tell as many people about it as you can. Um, so I shared it on the Seed Savers Exchange. Um, I sent it to people who were reading the newsletter that Carolyn and Mail and I were doing at the time, Off the Vine. But I also called Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and said, have I got a tomato for you? And told him about it, sent him the seed. He grew it. And then he called me and he said that it is a really delicious tomato. It's a wonderful story. It is so ugly. I'm afraid that our tomato of that color will never be accepted by gardeners. But I'll tell you what. I'm going to list it in my 1993 catalog with a strong caveat. And I actually dug through my seed catalogs and there's his 1993 catalog. And it says new for 1993, only for the very adventurous. And it described Cherokee purple. And, you know, here we are in 2020. I can go to any farmer's market in the country and what probably what will be the one heirloom that almost everybody's carrying is Cherokee purple. So. I don't know what to say, except I owe a debt of gratitude to Mr. Green, uh, to Cherokee Purple itself for, in a way, having helped me create this career that I now get to share my gardening experience through my books and through my blog. So um, it's just one of those unlikely stories, Kathy, that I'll be able to kind of take to my grave as one of the most unusual occurrences that happened to me in my life. And it is such a cool tomato to be associated with. It's it's one that always gets in the top three of our annual tomato tastes that we do here. Um, and so it's not just that it's funky looking and cool looking, but it actually has a really deep, um, mellow and sweet tomato taste. Yeah, it, it really, flavor-wise, it pretty much has everything. And, you know, in 1995, when I was gardening in Raleigh, I I think I had eight Cherokee purple plants growing. And one of them produced a tomato that instead of being purple, it looked like it had been drizzled with Hershey syrup. And I thought, this is cool. I've never seen this color before. So I saved seeds from it and it, and it came true. So again, to fill in more of why, why did I decide to be the tomato person, somehow I planted the seed of a variety where the skin color had mutated from clear to yellow and that Cherokee chocolate was born. And then some years after that, I was growing a whole bunch of Cherokee chocolate and one plant had fruit that remained green when it was ripe, but the, the, but the, the skin was yellow and Cherokee green was born. And uh, I know that Rob Johnson, some years after that, wrote to me and, and he loved Cherokee Green and Johnny's um, Selected Seeds is carrying that. And so all three Cherokees are equally productive, equally beautiful, equally delicious. And yet those who love to eat with their eyes and cook with different colors, you have three different colors of a really excellent tomato. Uh, I call Cherokee Purple certainly an heirloom. 
and I call Cherokee chocolate and Cherokee green, maybe tomorrow's heirlooms. Let's see if they stand the test of time. Let's see if my kids or their kids or somebody in 50 or 100 years is going to still be growing them. I do like to reserve that heirloom uh, verbiage and title to tomatoes that really deserve it. Um, so, you know, so a lot of the ones are dwarf project varieties. They're, they're stable. They're open pollinated. They're not heirlooms, nowhere near it yet. Uh, green zebra, 1975. Eh, is that an heirloom yet? I don't know. <laughs> Tom Wagner and I will have to have a little chat about that to see if we're ready to anoint that one, or is it still just a, a relatively new open pollinated one? <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's that edge of, is it 50 years, 75 years? Is it pre-World War II? So there's a lot of variability in that heirloom or sometimes somebody will say vintage tomato. Yeah. Well, for, you know, for tomatoes, I've always used 1949. And the reason is that is the year that Burpee came out with Big Boy. Big Boy was the very first highly marketed, very popular hybrid tomato. And the success of that tomato pretty much put an end to traditional tomato breeding of doing a cross and then working out a new variety to stability and putting it out there is a non-hybrid that people could save seed from. So um, anything, any non-hybrid that predates 1949 was really something that was worked on really hard. And then after 1949, almost all of the resources of, of the big seed companies went to creating, you know, Big Boy, Better Boy, Ultra Boy, Supergirl, Super, you know, all of the, the bigs and the supers and the ultras. Um, but, you know, the, this is also an admission that I'm getting older now. So um, Green Zebra has been out there for almost 50 years now. Maybe we slide that 1949 up to 1975, which is the year the Seed Savers Exchange came into existence. And then anything that predates 1975 becomes an heirloom. I don't know. It's not up to me to decide, but you're right. It does become a, and then when you get restaurants charging $15 for an heirloom tomato plate, when it's got, you know, big beef hybrid and celebrity hybrid, and there's not a, there's not an heirloom within 20 miles of that tomato plate. That's when I start getting a little bit feisty and say, you know, Let's let's drop the price of that a little bit. There's no heirlooms on that plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do agree that it, maybe we do need to move that date up a little bit, just a little bit. Um, so is there an heirloom tomato that has a great story, but you don't grow it or you don't recommend it just because it's eh, on taste wise, but that story still makes it a, a bestseller? You know, that actually describes... Um, quite a few uh, heirloom tomatoes. And so there's, a, there's so many different ways to answer this. So I'll start by saying my nine may be your six on a 10 point scale. Meaning um, when you start going to tomato tastings, you start really recognizing that we all have such different taste buds. Um, and, it, and it's just amazing to see that happen where you know, I remember we used to do tomato palooza, our tomato tasting in Raleigh, and we had black from Tula and we had Cherokee purple. They almost look identical. There was almost fisticuffs because one side of the table thought Cherokee purple was better and the other side said black from Tula was better. The answer was yes on both cases because that, that was the perception. Do you like your tomatoes sweet or tart or rich? Um, but yeah, there are tomatoes with great stories that make you wonder 
why did Uncle, why did Uncle George or whatever decide to save this tomato and name it? Um, I'm trying to think of one offhand. Um, well, so, and I and I don't want to uh, upset the people who sent me this seed, but I'm going to I'm going to be honest about the description of it. So. I was really fortunate to be invited to give a talk at a Leesburg um, garden event in Virginia. And the people there were absolutely lovely. And at the very end, they they made a big deal out of this because it was a big deal. And they said, we have a special tomato uh, called Uncle Joe. Uh, and you know the person is not with us anymore, but we've been growing it in our garden club. And it was a they brought it over from Italy, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I was so excited. I had this envelope of seeds and I brought it home and I planted it the next year. And my first attempt at it, I got something that wasn't at all like the description. So the, you know, in the seed saving of it, it had become cross. So I couldn't make a judgment on it that year. So they sent me another sample and it, it is a, a big, long red paste tomato. And for a sauce, it would be knockout, drop dead wonderful. But to cut up and put in a salad, um, there are probably 500 other tomatoes that you'd rather eat. But it's, it, you know, the story itself, the fact that they presented it with me, it, it made that tomato special to me. And I will grow it every few years just to dry down and dehydrate and to make sauce out of. Um, one of my favorite types of stories, so a few years ago, um, a man in Connecticut named Walt Swokla um, contacted me and he said, you know, I've got a tomato that my grandmother brought over from Italy in 1917. And I don't know if it's special or not. If I send you seed and you grow it, can you let me know if it looks like anything else that you have in your collection? And I grew it and it, it is spectacular. It was one of my best tomatoes this year. So I, I called up Walt and I said, would you mind if you can tell the story of this tomato, because it's a wonderful story he told about it, and talk to my friend Mike at Victory. And he agreed. And now um, Victory Seed sells Canselmo family heirloom, and it tells the story of Walt's grandmother and bringing the tomato over, and it shows the picture of it. And it made Mr. Swokla, Swokla so excited that now at Christmas, he goes to Victory and buys packets of it, and includes them with Christmas cards, and he gives them to relatives. And he's so proud that his grandmother's tomato is out there for anyone in the world to purchase. So being able to do that, um, anybody who sends me a special variety, the first questions I'm going to ask is going to be, you know, if this is a really great tomato, how about we make this available to everyone? Because that is how you prevent things from going extinct, is by making them available. Um, so again, I've answered your simple question with an awful lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. Um, so aside from Cherokee Purple and maybe Green Zebra, if you only had, say, a balcony space or, you know, a roof, small rooftop or, you know, some sunny little sliver of your backyard, what five heirlooms would you recommend growing? Wow. Okay. So uh, the first thing I would recommend is not even an heirloom. It is GASP, a hybrid, sun gold, the little orange tomato it has to be there and you know i remember after the book came out i was blown away by being asked by lynn rosetta casper to be on an episode of the splendid table and she actually as her last question 
even made it harder. You're going to a desert island. What three tomatoes do you bring with you? So Sun Gold was the first on my list. Um, so if we were to pick five, uh, Cherokee Purple would have to be in there. Um, I'm trying to think if we wanted to make people work and grow one more tall variety, or should we go with two of, let's say, tomorrow's heirlooms, which would be two of our dwarfs. So I will say anybody who has not grown Lillian's yellow heirloom, uh, and the very fast story on that is Lillian Bruce was an elderly woman in Tennessee whose sons used to go to farmer's markets and state fairs and find her unique vegetables to bring back to her. They brought this pale yellow, almost white tomato back to her. Um, she shared it with a fellow named Robert Richardson in New York. He sent me the seeds and it was just called Lillian's Yellow Tomato Number One. It is potato leaf. It's huge. It is one of the five most delicious tomatoes I've ever had in my life. So that is one, Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. But then I would go with two of the dwarfs and I would say they need to try Rosella Purple. And Rosella Purple is what would happen if you were to take Cherokee Purple in flavor, almost size and color and have it on a really productive three or four foot plant that would be very happy in a five gallon pot. Um, just a wonderful variety. And the other would be one that I named after my wife, Dwarf Sweet Sue, which is the perfect little six ounce sandwich tomato that's uh, clear yellow, um, a absolute nine out of 10 on a flavor scale. And aren't I lucky that I decided to name uh, my favorite dwarf tomato after my wife of 40 years. She's kind of happy that that worked out that way. So I would do that. I'd do um, Sun Gold, Cherokee Purple, Lillian's Yellow, Sweet Sue, and Rosella Purple. And that would be good eating. You'd have some stories there with uh, a few of the varieties. And uh, it would be a blast. Mm. And earlier you mentioned Mortgage Lifter. And there's a few stories about that. So... Uh, do we care whether it's true or not? <laughs> well, here's what we care about. We we care that I am just going to be embarking on uh, a little mini project with a professor at West Virginia State to get to the bottom of this. It turns out that in um, Barbersville, Virginia, was a man named William Essler who had a plant in his garden emerge with huge pink tomatoes that he called mortgage lifter in the early 1920s and claims to have patented the name. Then we have in the 1940s, a fellow named MC Biles, the radiator repairman, Radiator Charlie, who created by doing a very unique form of uh, cross-pollination between German Johnson and beefsteak and two other varieties using a baby ear syringe and lots of pollen spraying around. He created this huge pink tomato that he named Mortgage Lifter and was selling plants uh, at a pretty high price for the 1940s and paid off a mortgage. That's in Logan, West Virginia. There are actually about another six or so mortgage lifters. There's Riegers, McGarrity's, Halliday's, Mullins, that probably are one or the other. So my professor friend in West Virginia State <clears throat> is going to use genetic testing to look at how the two, Esler, how does Essler and Radiator Charlie compare genetically? And then 
which of these other mortgage lifters funnel in to one or the other. So we actually have two, I think, authentic stories about mortgage lifter. And we have the rare occurrence of two tomatoes getting a somewhat unique name, one of which was created, one of which was discovered 20 years apart, where neither person, even though they lived in the same state, knew that it was going on. On that note of sharing stories and tomato lore and your gain tomato wisdom from each season, I want to let the listeners know how they can follow you and how they can contact you. Sure. Um, the easiest way to reach me is email, and I'm just simply nc, as a North Carolina tomato man, at gmail.com. Um, I tend to be pretty good on email in terms of responding, except I've been not very good this last week or so because I'm in garden burnout mode, and I'll get caught up soon. Um, I have a website. It, and that is simply uh, craiglahulier.com. And I have my blog, and I have a lot about the Dwarf Project, some how-to videos. At one point, it had all of the places that I was speaking. But of course, um, it now has a list of all the places that I have spoken. <laughs> and uh, it's just we all know what that's like. Um, the other thing is that I'm continuing to do my live Friday Instagram, 3 p.m. Eastern. I am at NC Tomato Man on Instagram, and typically I'll do a demo. Um, lately, I've been doing some brief cooking demos because I love to cook and I like to show people some easy, wonderful things to do with tomatoes, uh, a tour of the garden, uh, talk about some of my recent cross-pollinations, how they can become involved with the project. But mostly I just uh, scroll through people's questions and it's like a lightning round. I'm on for 45 minutes and at least 25 minutes are just trying to answer every question that people have come up with about tomatoes. and. Uh, those are pretty much um, the main ways. I hope to get a webinar off the ground. Um, I have four talks that I love to give and I've given them all over the country, but now without travel, I wanna be able to reach people that haven't been able to see me talk. So details about that will be on my website and on my Instagram feed. Um, that's pretty much it, Kathy. Well, wonderful. And before we let you go, I wanted to ask one final question. And is there the one that got away? Is there one heirloom tomato that you've read the story of that were not currently available in seed form at least? Um, there is actually a really good way to answer that. And it is the authentic Abraham Lincoln as described and released by uh, the Buckby Seed Company of Rockford, Illinois in 1923. Um, they describe it as a large, almost round, one pound red tomato, tall growing plant, and the plant has foliage that has a distinctly bronze coloration to it. That is in the, every catalog they put out, and that was even in some uh, books that were written in the 1940s or so. Um, apparently, uh, Buckby ended up, ended up becoming the Shumway Company, but over the years, uh, the seed stock seems to have become crossed and lost. So now no matter what Abraham Lincoln one grows, no matter what seed bank it's from or what seed source, it's either too small or it's the wrong color or the foliage isn't quite right. And it's interesting you, you bring that question up because the search for Abraham Lincoln was one of the very, very first um, things that got me into tomatoes, reading Fred DuBose's book, The Total Tomato, that was the first tomato listed. 
And uh, of course, I went on a search for it, have never been able to find it. So uh, yes, there is always the one that got away. With heirlooms, there's probably dozens that have gotten away. But um, we find what we can, you know, we grow it out and we maintain it and share as widely as we can. And, uh, seeds are living things. We have to keep them growing. And that's part of the fun, right? Is those mysteries that may never be solved, but can always be pursued. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much, Craig, for sharing your love and passion for tomatoes with our audience. And I will be sure to tune in on your next Instagram live session. Yeah, that's tomorrow. Well, thank you. These were great questions. You're your uh, wonderful uh, hostess. And uh, just like I said initially, um, always happy to share my stories and grateful that you were interested enough to ask. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Plant Profile, Canna. Canna is an annual tropical flowering plant that lends drama to the landscape with its fabulous foliage and colorful blooms in midsummer in our mid-Atlantic region. The foliage can be green, bronze, burgundy, solid, or striped. The flowers can resemble an orchid, iris, or gladiola and have a sunset-like color range from pinks to yellows to oranges to reds. All canna originated in the tropical and subtropical Americas. They went to Europe in the mid-16th century, then on to Asia, South Africa, and Australia. Canna breeding took off in these regions, and they have returned many wonderful cultivars to our gardens in recent decades. Canna can be purchased in three forms, seeds, rhizomes, and potted plants. Due to the canna yellow streak virus, it is recommended that canna be started from seed or, if rhizomes are offered, you should ensure that they be certified virus-free. If you start from seed indoors in early spring, you can then transplant them outdoors when any danger of frost is gone. Canna do best in full sun and moist, rich soil. If you're satisfied with having only the foliage, canna can be planted in part shade conditions. Gardeners in our region have found that their canna may reliably overwinter and return when they are planted against a brick wall, along greenhouses, and in south-facing locations. You can give them extra mulch as some insurance against an exceptionally cold winter. You can also pull the plants in October cut off the stalks, and store their rhizomes in peat moss or similar material in a dark, cool spot. Canna are useful in the summer garden at the back of mixed borders, in containers, and as a privacy screen. The range of canna sizes span from dwarf forms around 3 feet tall to tall standards over 10 feet. Two of our favorite varieties are ermine, which has a creamy yellow flower and thrives in a wide variety of growing conditions, and South Pacific Orange, an All-America selection, 
winner that is a compact grower perfect for containers. For more tips about growing canna, see our plant profile story in the summer 2012 issue of Washington Gardener magazine. Canna, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. Before I jump into what's blooming in the garden this week, I wanted to share two upcoming webinars that I'm hosting. One is for my own magazine, Washington Gardener, and you can sign up through washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And that is on attractive and lasting plant combinations uh, that will be held Sunday, September 6th from 2 to 3 p.m. Um, you can register online, and if you can't make that exact timing, uh, you can still watch the recording for up to two weeks afterwards. And the second webinar is for Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, and you sign up through the Active Montgomery website, and that is on Conquering Cool Season Edibles. Um, so that is on September 19th, which is a Saturday from 10 a.m. to 11.30. Um, we're going to talk about all the edible plants that you can grow in cool weather shoulder seasons of fall and spring, and even some things that overwinter well for us here in the mid-Atlantic. So back to my garden and what's blooming, and what I see everywhere I look is goldenrod saludago. Um, it's late summer color that lasts for weeks, the pollinators love it, and it grows without any care from this gardener. What more could you want? And uh, it's a bit weedy though. I do have to dig it out uh, between paving stones and amongst other things where a three foot tall standard is just not gonna work. I started it off um, from a clump I dug from a construction site near me. It looked sad for a few days and then settled right in. Uh, I like it so much actually that I use it a lot in flower arranging and in gifts for cut flowers. But one year I felt a little cheeky and I entered it in the Montgomery County Fair competition in the other category. Did it win any ribbons? Uh, no, but I th think it looked pretty good lined up in the wall display of vases um, against other gorgeous garden flowers. And I thought it was nice to give gardeners a little permission to grow it and to not think of it just as a lowly weed. Foliage versus flowers. It is said that the mature gardener cares far more about foliage than flowers. 
If that is the case, color me infantile, since I'll never prefer any leaf to the beautiful peony. Not that I don't also treasure all my fine foliage friends, but saying they will ever surpass flowers as a main attraction in most gardens is ludicrous. I could be happy for a time in the garden of all mosses and ferns, two of my favorite plant families. Yet, if a trillium or even a tiny common dog violet popped up amongst them, you know my heart would start to beat a bit faster. This is the time of year when plant combinations are at their fullest and we can really enjoy the interplay of foliage textures and colors against one another. I've been trialing a new hookara, wine rose, and I must admit that it is stunning. I have it in three hanging baskets with purple flowering terrenia and white flowering bacopa. Both of these are annuals and will soon fade away while the hookara will play on with other combinations throughout the seasons. Sometimes it will be the thriller plant, but most of the time it will be the filler. And that is as it should be. Foliage fades and flowers wilt, but the gardener's memory endures. Happy gardening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.